0: Coming to you from the lab, where they talk about guns, gear, training, and everything in between. Here are your hosts, Mike and Big Keith, and this is The Gun Experiment.
1: How's it going, everybody, and welcome to The Gun Experiment. This week, Keith and I speak to a living legend in the world of firearms and discuss how to survive the fight after the fight. I want to remind everyone that we release new content every Tuesday morning, so be sure to subscribe and share the show with friends. This episode is brought to you by Target Sports USA. Be sure to check out their ammo membership, which gets you eight percent off, free shipping on all ammo orders, and a whole lot more, all for ninety five dollars a year. If you'd like to sign up or purchase ammo, please go to targetsportsusa.com forward slash the gun experiment. And as always, I cannot start the show without the big man across the table, my co host, Big Heath, is in the house. Keith, how are we doing?
2: Doing well. Thank you for the uh, wonderful inf- introduction, as always. No worries. So you're, you're, I always feel like you might be my biggest fan when you do that.
1: I'm glad that you feel that way. <laughs> I'm glad that you feel like you have a fan. <laughs> a, a fan. A fan. I'd like to think your wife is a fan of you. Uh, sometimes, sometimes a, couple, On a good day. A, couple, a few weeks ago, she wasn't, I was going to say when you're, <laughs> when you're not buying cars and reloading equipment and <laughs> then, then, then I'm okay. All right. All right. What's new? Anything uh, good? No, nothing new. Just
2: living life. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, we were just talk, talking before, uh, we started recording tonight, but I'm disappointed you won't be able to join me for that West Point shoot.
1: Yeah. This is your first two gun match, right? I, no, I've never done one. I've never
2: done. Well, I mean, we, I did that, uh, a three gun match like at a, at a, yeah. You know, private local club once, mm-hmm. but
1: uh, this this kind of thing really would have been up my alley too. In terms of like, it's there's some it like physical you, right? stuff. And I, I was, I, I you were asking a bunch of questions. I was like, just stop asking questions. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I don't want to let my little boy down. I no, gotta, well, of course, I gotta I, be a good dad on this I completely one. Completely understand that. So, anyway, before we get into our show and introduce our. Very, very uh, esteemed guest tonight. I want to ask a few things from our listeners, guys. If you're out there, if you would do me a favor, go to thegunexperiment.com, our website. It's very well done, if I do say so myself. And when you go in, there'll be a pop-up for our mailing list. Go on and join that. I, you know, I get this really bad feeling about social media these days. Keith, you've been saying it for years, but it's only so sustainable. And at some point, you know, I have to be able to get a hold of people and make sure people are getting messages and getting new content and this is the best way to ensure that that happens and even you know it always sends you information it sends you the newest uh uh, episodes and whatnot but if it ever gets to the point where we need to get you more important information that would be the way that we would do it to our most loyal and and avid fans so please go on and join our mailing list and on a more fun note be part of our growing community and join our discord page i know keith that's the one social media that you're doing and it's it's great yeah. You want to talk it up a little bit?
2: Sure. Yeah. We, uh, we've been having a great, uh, great conversations on, uh, I, I, I think my favorite one recently have been the, the new, new gun purchases. Yeah. You know, there's been a few of them on the group. Yeah. And um, Mike, you included. Me too. And uh, that, that's been my favorite part. So we just kind of been, you know, it's a place for uh, all of us to kind of ask some questions to each other. And yep. uh, there's usually somebody in that group that, that knows the answer to Yep to what somebody's asking and there's always room for more so join
1: a- and, and get part of that community it's it really is a really great place to be so uh we're going to get to our guests but before we do that one last thing tonight's interview is brought to you by flatline Fiberco. flatline creates quality sewn goods for the firearms community whether you're looking for a new sling or maybe some ear pro wraps to make range sessions a little more comfortable they've got you covered all products are made by hand in the u.s include free shipping and have a lifetime warranty Head over to flatlinefibercode.com and use the discount code gunexperiment 10 at checkout to get 10% off. And as always, thank you for supporting the companies that support the show. Today's guest has been the editor of Guns Magazine since the 70s, as well as the author of over 20 books on the topic of firearms and self-defense. He's also written books considered to be the authoritative text on the subject of the use of lethal force. He's received judicial recognition as an expert witness in weapons and shooting cases since 1979, and has been seen on every episode of Personal Defenses TV. He was named president of the Second Amendment Foundation in September 2022. Please welcome Masad Ayub to the show. Mass, how you doing?
0: Doing good, guys. Okay. Uh, one quick correction, though. I was never hand. Gu- I was never editor for Guns Magazine. I did the handgun column.
1: Oh, I well,
0: used to call it handgun
1: editor. My apologies. Well, your resume is very extensive, and I, if I botched that little piece up, I apologize, but I couldn't uh, fit it all no in. Don't worry about it. If I tried to yeah, do bro- it, the whole show would just be about your intro.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, no no problem, brother. Uh, Brent Weed is the editor. Uh, he and the uh, other editors, uh, Roy Huntington, editor emeritus, and uh, Tom McHale, editor at American Handgunner, do a great set of uh, podcasts. And your listeners can get them. At, <clears throat> they can find those at com or dot GunsMagazine.com.
1: Great. Thank you. So I have to, before I get into this interview, I have to give a quick little story, personal story. I uh, really got serious into defensive handgun shooting and firearm shooting probably somewhere around my thirties. And at the time I worked with the gentleman who was also into firearms and we'd have these little conversations and he would bring your name up quite often. And the more I started looking down the rabbit hole and started researching and learning, your name just kept showing up and showing up. And you know, I've, I've known who you are for a very long time, but it's a, it's a big pleasure to have you on the show. So thank you for joining us.
0: Well, it's my honor to be here.
1: You've established yourself as an expert on the use of lethal force. We will talk a little bit about the aftermath of use of force later on in the show, but can you give us a refresher on the use of force against both armed and unarmed opponents?
0: Sure. Well, basically, in terms of lethal force, which is the focus of what I teach, uh, for us to understand what it is, it's that degree of force that a reasonable, prudent person would consider capable of causing death or great bodily harm. And the, the reasonable man doctrine is a lens that we have to look at all of this stuff through. Uh, <clears throat> criminal or civil, um, bare hands, knife or gun. The jury that judges you is going to be instructed by the judge to ask themselves, what would a reasonable, prudent person have done in the same situation, knowing what the defendant knew at the time of the incident? And that is the the cornerstone that we have to look at. What justifies the use of deadly force is a situation of immediate and otherwise unavoidable danger of death or great bodily harm to oneself or to another innocent party that you have a right or even a duty to protect. That situation in turn is created by the presence simultaneously of three criteria on the part of your opponent. Uh, different schools will use different terminology, but the most common is ability, opportunity, and jeopardy. Uh, The ability factor means the opponent has the power to kill, either a deadly weapon per se, the gun, the knife, the club, whatever, or what's called disparity of force. Uh, The opponent or opponents may be ostensibly unarmed, but their physical advantage over you, the defender, is so great that if the attack continues, you're likely to be killed or crippled. Uh, That advantage, that disparity of force could take the form of greater size and strength, multiple opponents, very often male attacking female. Um, It could be the able-bodied attacking the handicapped. I've done a few of those recently. In fact, the last one about two weeks ago. Um, And another is uh, one that uh, presented itself in the famous Zimmerman case, position of disadvantage. Uh, You might be the same size and strength and equally matched, but the opponent has you down, you know, in in Zimmerman's case, in a mixed martial arts mount, a ground and pound, and your head is being pounded into the pavement, and you realize if this continues, I'm going to be brain damaged or killed. So that would cover the ability factor. Opportunity means the opponent's capable of very quickly employing that power to kill. Uh, The guy 100 yards away threatening to murder you and and waving a sword uh, is dangerous. I would be concerned about him. I would have my hand on my gun. I'd be wanting to get cover between us and even more distance. But it's not yet time to shoot. He's not close enough to immediately exercise that power to kill. Right. If he's doing the same thing from that distance with an AK-47, that element is certainly fulfilled.
3: Okay.
0: The third aspect, and often it's the key aspect, is jeopardy. Uh, jeopardy is essentially the manifest intent element. The opponent has to be manifesting by words and/or actions, and or actions an intent to kill or to cripple you. And what I explain to my students is uh, as long as I've been alive, we've been an armed society and more so now than ever. A whole lot of folks are out there carrying guns. We're all within range of killing each other. We don't shoot at each other because no one has created that manifest intent element. No one has attacked us. No one has seriously threatened us and created that immediate situation.
1: So a a quick question, (laughs) Keith and I were actually talking about this the other day and we were discussing the idea of brandishing, and uh-huh. I did a quick look today of exactly what brandishing is. And where does brandishing fall in terms of brandishing versus- Preventing? Possibly, yeah, preventing.
0: Okay, the the first thing I'd be looking at is the terminology. Uh, we've all heard someone say words mean things, and nowhere is that more true than in court. So we've got to look at the legal definition as opposed to uh, what we might think of as Webster's definition. yep. Um, a gun prohibitionist might think that simple open carry was brandishing. Uh, in fact, brandishing means that you're waving the gun or somehow displaying the gun in a reckless, threatening manner that is unlawful. When you've drawn your gun in self-defense, the proper term for it, uh, the state of Florida actually has it in the law books now, is defensive display. Yeah. So, listeners, memorize defensive display. Bad guys branded. Good guys defensively display.
1: Now, is that universal? Meaning, like, like we're in New York, which is obviously very uh, not pro gun.
0: <laughs> no, and and most states it's going to be subjective. Uh, the defensive display terminology has not yet become universal by any means. Yeah. But is- what we've got to show is basically easy way to remember it again is this: bad people threaten good people, warn. Uh, You have been put in danger. Your family's been put in danger. You have drawn your gun and told the guy to stay back. There is a principle in ethics and in some jurisdictions, even in law, called duty to warn. And the principle is that if you see someone about to do something very dangerous to themselves or another, there's literally an ethical duty to say, hey, whoa, stop doing that. Somebody's going to get killed. Right. If you have the, the individual threatening you in a road rage situation, for example, and he has physical advantage over you, he's holding a tire iron or something, taking him at gunpoint is not brandishing. Okay. Taking him at gunpoint is definitely a defensive display. And it's much, much easier to defend in
1: court. What I, yeah. So, what I, what I was saying when we had this discussion is I feel like it would be as though you felt the need. You drew your firearm. But if the guy all of a sudden puts a tire iron down and says, I'm good, man. I'm walking away. Now it's, now you can let him go. Now you can let him go. And it's de-escalated the situation. And that sure. would not Just be a one. brandishing brandishing situation.
0: No, it would be a self-defense. It would be a, no, no. Everybody's heard the term justifiable homicide. Yeah. Nobody yeah. has ever heard the term justifiable gunpoint. <laughs> but the essential <laughs> underlying principles are the same.
3: Yeah. Right. True.
0: And if, if you study this, as I know you two have, but not all of your listeners may have, every single study of defensive gun uses, uh, what we call DGUs, shows the overwhelming majority end without gunfire. The bad guy realizes, oh, shit, I am about to suffer a cause of death, sudden and acute vi- failure of the victim selection process. I'm terribly
2: sorry, sir, and I am leaving now is the doc the the documentation of that is really the hard part to, I I think, right. They, they just, how do you document that this happened and de-escalated the situation?
0: Uh, the way I put it to my students is you win the race to the telephone. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds counterintuitive to, to most people that, well, the the bad guys would never call the police. Yep. And again, I've got to say BS. Yeah. Uh, first, a whole lot of the bad guys don't have criminal records yet.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, all of us, if you've lived long enough, have lived someplace where there was one guy in the neighborhood whose mission in life was to harass everybody else in the neighborhood. Or at least we've met, you know, one of those, uh, one of those type of people in some situations. Sure. Uh, road rage being a classic example. You pull your gun, he leaves. He gets around the corner, he puts his tire iron back in the car, calls the police and says this crazy guy pulled a gun on me for nothing and I'll sign a complaint. The, that, the criminal justice system is geared on the assumption that whoever calls nine one one whoever makes the first complaint becomes the exactly. victim complainant.
2: I heard a story yeah, I heard a story exactly. from a couple of friends just not too long ago about just that they were fast food line, some guy got road rage about trying to cut somebody off in in the drive through lane and um you know tried to get out of the car and 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 you know go to attack uh, the other person. And uh, one of the individuals, you know, uh, had a a defensive display and uh, he ended up calling the, the, uh, the individual who approached the car uh, ended up calling the police first. And the gentleman who did the defensive display had to, uh, you know, have a discussion and justify. And in the end, in this particular situation, the police officer, um, there were other witnesses and the police officer said, you know, given what's happened, you can press charges to the individual that did the dis- defensive display. And um, that person chose to not do that because the person who would have uh, been arrested had kids in the car and, you know, one of those things. I- I'm not saying that he should or shouldn't have just more for the story of yeah. proving your point of that's the way, you know, it should be. The race to the telephone. I like race that. The telephone. I yeah. like that for sure. So uh, one of the things that I, I wanted to ask you, Moss, is, um, you know, you've been, you, you-, you talk very eloquently about this topic, these topics. And, you know, do you remember the first time you had the opportunity to be an expert witness in a judicial manner and, and like how you felt about that? that
0: well, was 1979. Uh, my first book had come out the year before, <clears throat> excuse me, Fundamentals of Modern Police Impact Weapons. And I got a call from an attorney in New York City Uh, His guy had been arrested for illegal possession of a deadly weapon to wit a bludgeon. And uh, he said he needed an expert to determine whether this was, in fact, a deadly weapon. Uh, The weapon was uh, what's called a Kyoga stick, K-I-Y-O-G-A. And it was basically a spring whip. And I, I got one, uh, a test sample, what I, what's called exemplar evidence, E-X-E-M-P-L-A-R. It's not the exact one because that's an, an evidence, but it's identical to it for testing purposes. And I was able to show, look, the way a, a, an injury is caused by a blood genoclub, et cetera, is it tends to be either have great weight if it's flexible or be very hard, very rigid. And that's what causes smashed tissue, bruising, uh, broken bones, et cetera. Uh, this thing is so flexible, you literally can't hurt anyone with it. And I, in court, I took off my jacket, rolled up my sleeve, whacked my, my own forearm as hard as I could and showed this slight redness. Uh, the prosecutor screamed, your honor, he's not hitting himself hard enough. And the judge snapped at him. The court can see how hard he's hitting himself. (laughs) And uh, it was a bench trial, and he was found not guilty. (laughs) Um, And it kind of went from there. I've never advertised as an expert witness, but, you know, that goes by word of mouth. Uh, Started doing more cases in the 80s, and, you know, I've been doing them ever since. Uh, Spent, wound up taking a lot of CLE courses, continuing legal education. Yeah, uh, good, primarily for practicing attorneys. Yeah, and get, that and eventually, in this, in this area wound up being brought in to teach them on you know the the key elements of doing a self defense case as opposed to typical guilt mitigation.
1: Uh, how to
0: do demonstrative
1: evidence and that. I find that remarkable because I was reading that about you, and it's very interesting that lawyers are learning from you. <laughs> you know, and that that's that's really telling about uh, how. Well, you know, read you are on the subject and, and how much uh, people respect your opinions on this.
0: Well, it's, it's kind of good to say so, but actually there's a lot of attorneys can learn from any expert witness in any field. The reason is they're doing if, if they're doing all criminal defense or they're doing all uh, civil defense, or' all plaintiffs <laughs> work for that matter. They're doing a broad spectrum of cases. The expert, every case they do is in this one particular field. And very often we have a criminal defense lawyer who's had a bunch of clients who pled self-defense, but in fact, you know, was a gangbanger shooting another gangbanger. Their defense defense plea was bullshit. And when they have an actual self-defense case, they've, they realize, hell, I never did one of these before. Uh, the person who specializes in that area has done a bunch of them. and say, okay, here's where the attack's likely going to come. Here's what we found to be the best counters. And what we can also do is refer them to the, their peers, the other attorneys that we've worked with successfully in these cases, who can tell them here was the strategy that worked for us. Here's why we didn't handle it the way we'd usually handle typical guilt mitigation and trying to establish reasonable doubt. Uh, here's why it's much more important in this case for the witness to take the stand as opposed to the conventional wisdom of never let your witness or never let your defendant go on the witness stand. Yeah. So it's, it's not just me, it's really any any smart lawyer uh, is going to not just tell the expert witness, here's what I need, they're going to ask them, what cases have you done that are like mine? Tell me how those went, tell me the lawyers who tried them
2: so I can talk to those attorneys. But the fact that you can recall all of that is pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, yeah, for real. You know, it's, well, funny, I- it's funny because you're talking about the legal part, and as we all know, if, if you're carrying a firearm- uh, as a ccw and and you're a responsible citizen, you know people think that we're dangerous, but I always say we're probably more safe than anybody because the last thing you want to do is use yeah. it right i I always struggle with the idea of a situation where I might feel morally pressed or obligated to intervene in a situation with a third party where use of force might be necessary you know in, in other words i'm walking down an alley and I see a woman being raped or I'm in a you're gas cheesesteak in Philly. And- <laughs> yeah. 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 You're, you're, you're in line at a cheesesteak place and a guy starts, you know, you know, bludgeoning another, another human and for ordering lettuce and tomato on their cheese. Steak. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What, what,
0: you, what you've got to look at with that is we've got to be careful of stereotypes. If, if we're dealing with third party strangers, Uh, People whose history we don't know, and we don't know the immediate history of the conflict we just walked in on.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, uh, What you just described, for example, the guy raping the woman in the alley. Uh, Some years ago, a guy wound up going to prison for pulling a gun in that situation because it was an undercover, plainclothes New York City police officer arresting a prostitute. And when prostitutes got arrested and didn't want to be arrested, they didn't yell police brutality. They yelled help! Rape! Rape! Right.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And this poor, that poor bastard wound up in prison over that. Wow. Um, we we grow up, you know, watching Popeye cartoons and being told the big guy who's hitting the other guys the bully, and the smaller guys automatically the victim.
3: Yeah.
0: It could be the big guy hitting the little guy. We can't see the knife in the little guy's other hand. The big guy is the victim, and he's desperately trying to stop that guy before he gets stabbed.
1: The one that always gets me, and I, and I would actually, there's always what-ifs. Like, what-ifs are a tricky situation. But I, I would like to paint a picture, and I'd like to kind of hear your thoughts on this. Uh, situation where you're with maybe your wife or your child. Uh, I'll, I'll say I'm with my son, let's say, or my daughter. And you're in a gas station, you're in a pizzeria, you're, you're having a slice of pizza, let's say. And guy walks in with a gun, starts waving the gun all over. He's asking for everyone's money. At that point, is there, is it reasonable to believe that this guy could take everyone's money and then shoot everybody in there, including you and your child? Like, is that enough to go, uh, you know, and obviously it's every case is different. A lot of what ifs, like I said, but is that a reasonable expectation? Guys waving a gun around, asking for money that the next logical step could be my life could be over.
0: It's certainly understandable and it's a reasonable belief at the same time we have to <clears throat> excuse me we have to balance it against uh, history and general law enforcement advice now you've just pretty well described the recent shooting on the Takaria in Houston uh, four shots are fired the bad guy goes down or more shots are fired uh, while the guy is down the guy who shot him the the armed citizen who shot him walks over picks up the guy's gun realizes it's a plastic toy that resembles a real gun, and then appears to shoot the guy one more time in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. Now, every cop, every uh, every legitimate expert that, that I've heard from on it has no problem with the first four shots at all. Yeah, yep. uh, even though the guy's moving away from him, uh, he's still a threat to others. Uh, he is clearly an armed robber, a violent felon with a lethal weapon threatening death. The four shots in the second volley are difficult to justify but could very well be explainable. Now, that I've not, not yet heard from the grand jury on it. Uh, people are saying, ooh, they must be out to hang him because he's going to the grand jury. In Texas, every homicide goes in front of the grand jury, including you know police officer, line of duty shootings. And it's entirely possible that with tunnel vision and everything else, uh, that he did not see the gun fall away from the guy and knew how quickly the guy could just roll over and return fire. Yeah. And we also can't tell from uh, that surveillance video what the guy on the ground is saying. Maybe he's saying nothing at all. Maybe he's giving out a death rattle. Or maybe he's saying, MF, I'll kill you. We don't know. But any of those, that could change the complexion of that. The final shot into the back of the head is going to be the the highest kill for that guy's defense attorney to climb if the grand jury indicts him.
1: Yeah, we did a we did a deep dive on that on the show and kind of came, kind came of came to the same. same conclusions you're coming to right now. Um, but in my scenario, so it sounds like you agree that the in that scenario, which was you know that Takaria situation was very similar, that the first four are somewhat reasonable to anybody who might be fearing for their life.
0: I do. At the same time, we have to balance that against some other incidents. Uh, Late 1990s, uh, Barstow, California area. A police officer off-duty is in a McDonald's. The guy walks in and robs the place, and he's doing exactly what the Taqueria guy did, except this guy's got a real gun with live ammo. Uh, The cop was a sharp young officer. He's got a plan with his wife. If anything like this happens, you and the kids are going to separate from me because you know, when I draw my gun, it's going to draw gunfire gun fire in my direction. They get out. He draws his gun. He yells a challenge. The guy turns and shoots at him, and he lit the guy up. Uh, if I recall correctly, the officer was carrying a Glock 26, 9mm. Killed the armed robber where he stood. Here screams behind him, turns around. The shot that the man had fired has killed a little girl. Oh. And that cop has been dealing with that now for a quarter of a century. Oh. Um, We've when we are the ones who up the ante or challenge the bad guy, we're gonna. If it all ends well and you you kill the monster, you're gonna be the hero. If it goes badly, if that guy fires a shot, everybody else is gonna say, "Look, the cops all recommend let the robber take the money and go." Right. But you had to be the hero, and you pulling your gun got that child killed. Yeah. So it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. There's. If if the guy was simply in the attack, if I had been in that attack area, I can certainly understand what the the shooter did, the good good guy, the the armed citizen. Uh, Had the, instead of sticking the gun in everybody's face, been simply robbing the counter, I would have sat there quietly, had my hand on my concealed weapon, kept an eye on what was happening, and if the guy leaves with the money, Basically, you've got to play the odds, and the reason police crime prevention units tell you, um, give them the money, let them go. Most of the time, they're not going to shoot you. That's actually true. But we have to worry about uh, you know the deviation from the norm. Of course, you also see the rare case where the the victim complies perfectly, and the bad guy still executes them just out of psychopathic or bloodlust or insanity. We, so a lot of it is you're you're going to be using your life experience and judgment of people. Is this guy a psycho who's on the edge of exploding, or is this guy just calmly handling this? It's obviously something he's done before. I give him the money; he's probably going to leave. That's a decision you've got to make.
2: There. I, I don't want to go down a uh, you know go down a path too far, but you know the reality is I think as a society we sometimes we forget that. Uh, as human beings, we're we're all just animals, and uh, you know we're, we're we're we are capable of just being. Excuse the language, fucking nuts, yeah. <laughs> you know, crazy. But um, wh- a question that I had when we were getting ready to to talk with you tonight was: Have you ever given any thought to the total amount of rounds you have fired in your career?
0: <laughs> I wish that <I'd> kept count. <laughs> I mean, uh, like, one of my mentors early on was Colonel Charles Askins Jr. And he at one period uh, during the period when he uh, became the national champion, I think 1936, he kept track of some ungodly number, like 300,000 rounds that he had fired just in the two years running up to that.
3: match.
2: Wow.
0: Um, I honestly have
2: no idea. Well, I had done some quick math, so let's have a little fun with this for a minute. Do you think you conservatively shot a thousand rounds a month? Like for the vast part of your career, or do you think more? Oh,
0: when I, when I was competing, oh yeah, easily
2: easily a thousand a month.
1: How them. long did you compete? Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, informally early teens, uh, formally started at about nineteen. Uh, so what to present, oh, uh, I did it. I did it heavily in my twenties. I uh, got back into it more of in the latter thirties and forties.
2: Uh, so so to give you an
0: idea, my my wife and I figured ten years ago. Uh, we were averaging twenty four matches a year. We were generally able to. Wow. You know, shoot multiple. So uh,
1: conservatively, how many years would yeah, you say you forty competed? years? Forty 45. years.
0: Uh, well, competing would be. I'm seventy. I'll be seventy five this year. I started competing so in NRA 50. competition at nineteen. Fifty so. eight years. Yeah, fifty. Fifty uh, eight. 50.
2: Let's go
0: uh, fifty five. Yeah, you, you do the math, kid. It's too depressing yeah. for me.
2: Six. Let's just say. A, a, Conservatively, 660,000 rounds. And that's just competition. That's That's not including your trainings, your instructing, reviewing firearms or any of that stuff. So you got to be a million, a million, million round man you might
0: be. I or. do not know. I, I honestly don't know. One, one thing I learned in court, if you don't know the answer, the answer is, I don't know.
1: Never <laughs> well, guess. I can tell you it's a lot. <laughs> we'll go with a vague term of a lot. I'll say
0: it's a lot. Yeah, I'll yeah. say it's a lot. Judging by my ammo bills, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But uh, my wife and I now, we, you know we went from a decade ago to shooting a couple dozen matches a year to last year, I think I shot five and she shot three or four.
3: Do it was do one match. Uh, she
0: had a bad knee and didn't go to. There's one she won so much. Uh, she lo- Women look at this differently than guys. Um, she said, look, I've won it twice. Uh, let somebody else have a chance.
2: <laughs> well, you,
0: you never hear a male letter. No, <laughs> no,
2: no. Um, but, do you, did you ever reload during that career, or are you always a factory?
0: I did when I was younger. Um, the last few years, Christ, I don't have time to shoot, let alone reload. Mm, yeah. Um so a while back, I gave away all my uh, reloading stuff to
2: young uh, people who were coming I'm, up. And, I'm just starting to dabble in pistol and rifle. I've been reloading shotgun for, for a little bit now. Um, I, I That's probably what I shoot the most is is shotgun. thank Dylan. Thank Dylan. I did. That's what I bought. Yeah. I bought a Dylan 650.
0: <laughs> yeah. Mike Dylan's a saint for our business.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I was doing research, uh, getting ready for the show, and... I saw a lot of stuff on the idea of gun registration, and and right now, you know, there's the whole thing with the uh, (laughs) bump stocks and uh, not the bump stocks, excuse me, with the um, pistol braces, and you know, the uh, ATF is giving a grace period to register and all this other stuff. And you did a very nice job of pointing out, with a lot of people point out, quite frankly, but the idea that. Ultimately, gun registration leads to to confiscation. It's historically documented in many civilizations. Yeah. It just doesn't make
2: any sense what registering it does. What does that
1: do for you? Well, it does exactly that. It leads to (laughs) confiscation, right? But you brought up something that I have never heard anyone else bring up, and that is the Haynes versus U.S., and I, I was hoping you could... Again, it's out there, but if you could, just for our listeners, discuss sure. what uh, that is. Sure. Listeners,
0: listeners, look it up. Haynes versus United States, H-A-Y-N-E-S. It says, in essence, you can't require a convicted felon to register as firearm because it would violate his Fifth Amendment rights against uh, self-incrimination. Yeah. So basically what we have, the only people who will register the guns are the law-abiding people who will never be a problem. The people who are immune from gun registration are the criminals who are trying to control. And if that does not equal bizarro world, <laughs> I can't think of a,
2: a better so, example. So it's just—it's it, I'm literally over here laughing. I can't. It's crazy. As but, soon as you said it, the light bulb went off. I was like, "What?"
1: <laughs> so I have a couple of things here, and the first thing is, if somebody says, uh, "I I will not do that. I will not give up my property." And I will not register it. They're not felons at that point, in terms of being a convicted felon, but they are they do possess On something paper? that is not legal at that point. Wouldn't that also apply to them at that point? In other words, now to give it a to, to It's the chicken or the egg. Yeah. Now all of a sudden you have something that is not legal any longer. You would have to incriminate yourself by giving it up or by you know what I'm saying?
0: Well, to see whether uh, Haines v. First, uh, it would depend whether the the new law, if you will, made it a felony or a misdemeanor. Or, my uh, often the proposal might be first offense misdemeanor, or second offense felony. Uh, I imagine many of your listeners have more than one or two guns. Uh, Basically, what we're looking at here is it would be a test case, and. Your mother should have told you, never be a test case.
3: (laughs) That's very true.
0: You you have a good, strong, I think you have a very strong theoretical argument. Yeah. But basically, you would end up being the guinea pig. Yeah, no, I'm not going to be it. Someone
1: who would fund it for you. Not this guy. But I just, it made me think, though. I said, if if it's illegal for a convicted felon, wouldn't it be the same? Wouldn't it be wrong to make anybody... Self-incriminate themselves, so it's well, an interesting it, 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 theory. It doesn't.
2: It does, The the, uh, the Fifth Amendment doesn't protect you from incriminating yourself from a, a crime you've already been committed to. It's it's incriminating yourself to a crime that you you would be
1: committed. Right. With. <laughs> that's my point. Yeah, and that brings me up brings another point, And I'm going to kind of put you on the hot seat here, Ma. So I, I sure. apologize. But I read somewhere about um, Ayub's laws. And I believe it went something along the lines of obey the law, know the law better than the other guy, and then the last part's a little foggy, but something along the lines of you'd never feel the need to break the law. Is that close?
0: Well, basically, Ayub's law number one is be prepared uh, for it. Be prepared to do what needs to be done. Okay, the uh, the first universal law of human conflict is know where the attack will come, have a counterattack already, a proven counterattack strategy already in place and poised for launch. Because when it happens, there's not going to be time to figure out what, what do I do now. It's going to be down to a stimulus response level. So I would say UPS law number one, be able to predict where the attack will come, have a proven counterattack already in place and poised for launch. That should be taken in context with UPS law number two Which holds anyone arrogant enough to name laws after himself is arrogant enough to number (laughs) them arbitrarily. So don't worry about the goddamn (laughs) number. Well, and somewhere further down the list is never break the law. Know the law better than the other guy, and you'll probably never feel a need
1: to. Okay, so I so I I did have it pretty close, at least part of that. So it's safe to say that a man such as yourself has. You were um, a part-time officer, and uh, all the way up to higher ranks. And you've certainly been a law-abiding concealed carrier for many, many years. So it's safe to say that you believe in law and order and following laws. But at the same time, that puts us in a very precarious situation because when it comes to things like gun registration, sometimes we have to... Practice a little civil disobedience. A lot of a lot of people do, right? Mm-hmm. So, Keith, what is the phrase uh, you always say? It's, uh, Tom, Thomas Jefferson, you know, uh, uh, uh,
2: uh, any law a man does not feel is just should not be followed. Basically, yeah. I so I I'm I curious where you that. feel
1: on these things because I'm kind of balancing your law abiding self and your uh, and your belief in gun registration leading to confiscation. So go ahead.
0: Uh, we have a great many American sheriffs now, uh, yes. who are very much on our side. And who have flatly publicly announced, we're not going, for example, we're not going to enforce a so-called assault weapons ban. We're not going to enforce a magazine capacity limit. And, you know, people like Governor Pritzker in Illinois, when so many of the sheriffs there uh, made that statement, said, oh, well, then we'll, uh, you know, we'll take your jobs away from you because you're violating the law want want to uphold. What you've got to understand is virtually every law enforcement officer in this country, myself included in the past, takes an oath to support the Constitution of the United States. Right. And if a politically correct law is blatantly unconstitutional, uh, they are in the position Governor Pritzker and people like him, Governor Hickenlooper in Colorado, and of the 57 or 58, I forget the exact number of sheriffs in the state, When 53 or 54 of them joined us in the lawsuit to kill that stupid magazine restriction, (laughs) um, if you're going to tell them, oh, you're fired for not obeying the law, well, okay, so you want them to be Adolf Eichmann, we only followed orders, why did you take those children out and throw them in death camps that the Fuhrer ordered us to when you know the thing is wrong? So, in the end, uh, what we have to remember is the Second Amendment is, by definition, an enumerated right. Yeah. And I think if the day ever comes when uh, we got a president, for example, who uh, (coughs) said, uh, We'll confiscate all the guns and I order America's police to do so, and I order the Attorney General, the Chief Law Enforcement Officer of the United States to order them to do so, uh, there's going to be a whole lot of middle fingers raised by American law enforcement. We're going to say, excuse me, we swore an oath not to violate the Constitution of the United States. We apparently, unlike you, can read the damn thing, uh, including the Bill of Rights, and we are not going to do that. And by the way, you guys who want to take the guns seem to all belong to the exact same political wing that wants to decarcerate and empty the prisons and eliminate cash bail for dangerous criminals now which is it you're you're telling us we've already got too many people in prison yet you want to create 20 million 40 million however many tens of millions of felons with your new feel-good law that will do absolutely nothing to stop violent crime in america what the hell is wrong with you people
2: those thoughts are a lot of times i feel like they're just People are able to compartmentalize them so well that they forget that they yeah. are trying to have their cake and eat it too. But um, you've been credited with writing over, you know, I, I think the number is like twenty something books. But uh, can, I'm gonna, can you give me one or two that our listeners must read? You know, what, what's the one out of your out of your collection?
0: Uh, well, the most recent is the uh, the second edition of my book, Deadly Forest. Uh, first edition came out in 2014. Second, the updated second edition came out last year and it's my first audiobook, oh. Uh, so that's easier for a lot of folks.
1: So. Did you do it yourself the read?
0: Uh, I did. Yeah. That's great. Uh, well,
2: that is good. I, I do uh, some audio. I, I do. I like kind of supplement cause, uh, a coworker of mine suggested that a couple years ago and it's really, I've, I'm
1: reading more books than I ever had before.
0: Well, I always had a good face for radio. I'll see <laughs> yeah, that's
1: that's right why we're doing what we're doing. <laughs> exactly. He knows there's no video component here. <laughs> so kind of switching topics a little bit here. You were recently named president of the second amendment foundation. That's uh, yes, uh, 2020. Yeah. How has that experience been so far? Oh, it was 2020. I thought I had uh, 2022. I thought, okay. Uh, uh,
0: September, 2020. Oh, okay. Uh I've I've enjoyed it. I've been for a few decades on the uh, board of trustees. I was always very impressed with what the Second Amendment Foundation did. Uh, the founder, uh, Alan Gottlieb, was the one who had the vision in the 1970s to say, "Look, we need legal scholarship on the Second Amendment because everybody's interpreting it wrong." Well, the, uh, down near every book you read about the Constitution or every article says it's about the National Guard, and that's BS. And it was his, largely his funding and his instigation, that led that to turn around. That led so many legal scholars to actually look deep into it and realize, "Holy crap, this Gottlieb guy is right." We may not like it, but
3: <laughs> yeah, that
0: is I, what it says.
2: It's we, we had uh, a we had a discussion on Discord not recently about it, and I I one of the things that I had said is people forget that the the people who were defending this country before. That, that ended up writing the Second Amendment, they were fighting barefoot. Well, they had rifles, and but not nearly as much as the British did.
0: Well, I, I always try to appeal to common sense. And one argument that i found resonates with people who aren't locked into the, the anti-gun mentality is, look, the, the framers who wrote that document in 1791 were, for the most part, veterans of the war. Yeah, they
2: just got, got done fighting. They, they'd only been done fighting okay. for like the, what,
0: six the years. Gun, yeah, the gunfire of the revolution was still echoing in their ears. Do you, If you seriously think they meant to empower a National Guard, a <laughs> National Guard of that formative period would have been Tories loyal to King George yeah. and yeah. duty-bound to crush the rebellion yeah. and kill their neighbors. I do not think that is the obvious legislative intent no. of the Bill of Rights. It, End it, of story.
2: It fascinates me how, how uh, you know, it, it really, in, in terms of t- years, right, it really wasn't that long ago. It was only <laughs> 250 years ago. Yeah, relatively. Relatively it, short time, it, so it just—it it fascinates me how quickly everyone has forgotten what they've learned about that, or or why we teach it. Really, I guess
1: you know what it is. It's it's not that long ago, relatively speaking, to the world, right? But it generation we we have jumped leaps and bounds technologically, yeah, and that's opened up a wide world, right? It's we've we've opened up quite a bit in terms of that. And speaking of that, uh, back to the Second Amendment Foundation, Uh, we had Alan on um, a while ago. That's actually how we got connected with you. And he was kind of telling us that there were some big things coming down the pipe. Uh, Are there any major changes or events or announcements that maybe you could share with us coming from the foundation?
0: uh not at this point we are I literally i've lost count of how many dozens of uh, lawsuits uh we're planning to send yeah. now. you guys are killing it uh, yeah. against all these all these feel-good things you know illinois uh colorado uh oregon etc cetera, etc cetera. um the arguments are <clears throat> the, the legal arguments are on our side mm-hmm. uh the uh the mass media of course is not and basically uh I think overall we're winning. Now, if you look at the big picture, go back, let's say, 40 years. Uh, 40 years ago, uh, there were seven states where there was no provision in the law for the ordinary private citizen to carry a loaded gun in public for self-defense. Today, there are none. Every state has some provision for it. Uh, Back then, you could count on your fingers uh, the number of shell-issue states. Most were May issue, which essentially in a lot of places became a code for <laughs> we'll give you the permit if you're white, male, rich, and politically connected. Yeah. Uh, uh, by, until the Bruin decision in June of last year, the shall issue states, any, any law-abiding applicant must be issued the permit, or the issuing authority must show damn good reason why not, had become the norm for the most part. And the Bruin decision, in effect, put a stake in the heart of the whole may-issue, corruption-prone regime. Yeah. Uh, Forty years ago, there was one state, from the state of Vermont, where you didn't need a permit to carry a gun. Today, literally half of the states, oh, 25 yeah. of them, yep. are so-called constitutional carry. Hopefully, so hopefully we soon have made tremendous strides.
1: Yeah, we were just saying that Florida could tip it over to more than half, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, so I, before we get on, I want to move on to our next segment, but before we do, uh, we have our discord page and one of our members, uh, it goes by the name Bishop. He actually wrote in a question for you, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. He had watched your video on the wedge hold and yeah. most instructors that we've worked with teach the wrapping the support hand fingers wrapped around the primary hand. And now they're saying to stay clear of wrapping the support hands index finger around the trigger guard. Uh, and I'm well, describing-
0: I, say, I say that, too. I'm wedging the index finger under the front of the trigger guard to cam
1: it upwards. Okay, so his question was, uh, in terms of the wedge hold, it seems to be a bit of a hybrid between the two. Do you still find I it actually- relevant, or have you abandoned that practice at this point?
0: No, it, it's going to depend on hand size and uh, the shape of the trigger guard. Uh, if you have big hands in a 1911, you're not going to be able to do it. Because uh, essentially you run out of trigger guard. The, yes. uh, uh, the same would be even more true with like a single action army or a Blackhawk. Uh, but it'll work well with a revolver. It works well with almost all the striker guns. Uh, the uh, double action autos it works well with. And uh, the HK pistols in particular, my God, it's like they made them to
3: work with the <laughs> wedge on. Okay.
0: So I tell folks, look, it's your hands and it's your gun. Try the different techniques, see what works for you, not just what feels good, but do some performance testing with an electronic timer, score the targets, and the targets and the timer are going to tell you the story. One or another technique, you're going to be hitting a little bit faster and straighter.
1: All right. There you go, Bishop. There's your answer from the man himself. And before we move on, Mass, where can people find you? Where's the best place for them to connect with you?
0: Well, the training, which is what I do full-time, we do around the country. And they can access that at massadougroup.com. That's M-A-S-S-A-D-A-Y-O-O-B group.com. The books, the easiest thing is to go on Amazon or uh, gundigeststore.com. For the last several years, uh, most of my books have been uh, published by Gun Digest.
1: Okay, great. Thank you very much. So we discussed running gun with you earlier. It's our 10-question rapid fire. You ready to do this?
0: Hit hey, it, hey, kid. Send right. me in,
1: coach. Here we go. Number one, what is your favorite gun in your personal collection?
0: Probably uh, 1911. Uh, very likely the first one I got when I was 12 years old. What gun 1918 you... production, military surplus.
1: What gun would you buy if money was no object? <sighs>
0: uh, God, I don't know. The one, that, uh, uh, the one that killed Billy the Kid, maybe, if I had seven figures. Yeah. <laughs>
1: If you, <laughs> if you could have a drink with one person living or dead, who would it be?
0: To have a drink uh, with someone? Well, I'd want someone living. The dead ones smell bad. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I th- I think Queen Latifah. She that woman impresses the hell out of me. as a role model for <laughs> strong women
1: in America. All right, I love it. Favorite caliber? Forty-five ACP. Favorite hobby, not gun-related? Photography. If you could have one superpower, what would it be?
0: Uh, The one I already have at age 60, I became invisible to younger women. (laughs) I I didn't say it was a good superpower, but it's all I've got, kid.
1: (laughs) All hell breaks loose. Is it better to be armed or trained? Yes. (laughs) Is it better to be loved or feared?
0: I would prefer loved by my friends and feared by my enemies, so it's not uh, either or.
1: Rifle, pistol, or shotgun?
0: Pistol, it's always gonna be with you.
1: You're in the worst scenario imaginable. Who do you want to have your back other than your spouse?
0: Other than my spouse. Well, the ghost of Jim Cirillo, maybe. Uh <laughs> that'll work. It's hard to say. I can think of a lot of people who fit that category. Can, anybody I didn't a, name would be pissed.
2: You could have a
1: ghost. That's okay. We're 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 fine with that. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> Let's So, Mass, it was not the fastest time, but I have to say it's one of the funniest ones ever. Well,
2: ever. for sure. Okay. And I think the Queen Latifah answer gives you a solid 30 seconds off, <laughs> and uh, that puts you pretty high okay. up there.
0: <laughs> Only strong women are interesting, kid.
1: <laughs> All right, I like it, I like it. So on this episode of Let's Mix It Up, we're going to discuss uh, use of force situations and how to survive the fight after the fight. Before we do that, Let's Mix It Up is brought to you by Ridgeline Defense. Ridgeline is one of the nation's premier training facilities and offers programs based on proven tactics and real-world experience. Their highly trained staff specializes in pistol, carbine, precision rifle, breaching, sniper operations, and low visibility force protection. If you're looking to take your skills to the next level, you've found your new training partner. Check them out at ridgelineshooting.com. We've discussed the what-ifs. So a what-if goes wrong and you have to use force uh and you have to use your firearm where do we go from here mas
0: first uh make sure you've uh that the specific threat is over uh get to a position of cover do not leave the scene unless you're under mob attack or something because it, it triggers a flight equals guilt element um, you be the one, as we said earlier, to call nine one one. When they pick up, give first give the location and repeat it. In case you're cut off, they know where to send the cavalry. Yep. Tell them I've been violently attacked. There's there's been a shooting. I need paramedics here. I need police here.
1: I'm going to stop you. Let me stop you really quick. So one of our other Discord members uh, goes by the handle of Wise Guy. He specifically had a question about this particular topic.
2: This particular part
1: of part of this topic. So. He asked when calling 911 after a self-defense shooting, should you say A there's been a shooting or B I need police and an ambulance? And I think where he's going with this and Keith you could t- correct me if yeah, I'm wrong.
2: Yeah, I mean what he's what he what I think he's trying to say is specifically should you say anything about a shooting or a gun being involved?
1: Right, because the thought is if if they were to then get disconnected, or they were you were to get off with nine one one, would the gun would the cops come thinking that that there's a shooter, an active shooter, and yeah. that possibly you're it?
0: No, you stay on the line. Tell them I'm the complainant. Tell the officer, give the physical description. Uh, tell them my weapon has been secured. Uh, stay on the line. Uh, this is going to be a volatile, possibly chaotic situation. And if anything changes or there's a secondary attack, uh, you want to uh, first, it'll be documented by the 911 recording. But also, it puts you like one relay away from directly talking to the police through the dispatcher. Uh, the shootings happened in your home. Somebody's pounding on the front door. Uh, is that the burglar's buddy or is that the cops? Uh, ask dispatch someone is pounding on my front door. Is that your officers? Yes. They're going to tell you, put the gun down, unload the gun, or something like that. I would holster the gun and state my weapon is secured, which is absolutely true. There's no deception there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you have to keep the guy at gunpoint, say, ma'am, I have a very dangerous man here at gunpoint. Uh, I fit this description. The man I have at gunpoint uh, fits that description. Uh, please get the officers here. Try to be in a position where you see the responding officers before they see you. That's good advice. Uh, the, the reason for that is anyone the, they see the gun, somebody's going to scream, drop it, or show me your hands, or something like that. It's human nature at any time, and more so in distress. When we hear a sudden sound, we turn toward it. The gun will turn with you. It's going to appear to the cops like you're swinging the gun toward them, and it's highly likely you'll be shot and killed. If you can see the cops coming, that is when you lower the weapon, that is when you holster the weapon and you get get your hand either get get your hand away from it. If they tell you, drop the gun, drop the gun. No sudden movements, just slowly open the hands and let it fall. And hopefully there'll be enough distance between you and the bad guy that the bad guy can't uh, grab the dropped gun. Do not become outraged when the cops grab you and cuff you. Maybe put you on the ground. They don't know who's who. You've shot somebody. They'll get it figured out. If they've been rough with you, you'll have a nice cash settlement coming. <laughs> but uh, fighting the cops at the scene is going to get you hurt. And it tears what's called the mantle of innocence. That is the, the overall innocence of of. The party involved. The overall impression of you as a good guy. So be be
1: compliant. Okay, and uh, can we go into the, a little bit about the sort of protecting yourself in terms of for, for legal reasons? Well, the, not not speaking to the to the officers. What to tell them? What not to tell them?
0: <laughs> yeah. That, okay i i give I give a five point checklist. Um, First, establish the active dynamic. Um, That is, explain what happened briefly. Uh, The active dynamic is not that you shot him. The active dynamic is what he did that made you shoot him. Uh, This man kicked down my door and came at me, whatever it was. Second, indicate your future cooperation. I'll sign a complaint against him. I'll sign a statement against him. I'll testify against him, something of that nature. Before anything else, after that, point out evidence. Uh, Particularly if someone's been shot, that scene is going to be trampled by emergency rescue personnel Uh, and all the emergency services, fire, emergency medical service, and police. Preservation of life is the prime objective. It takes priority over preservation of evidence. Uh, Spent casings are going to get kicked away or lost or moved. Uh, If it goes on long enough, the guy's dropped knife might be picked up by uh, some witness on the street before the cops get there point out the evidence before it disappears it gets moved mm. fourth point out witnesses now the bad guys never point out witnesses this kind of helps the cops figure out who's who so a whole lot of people don't want to get involved and if you don't point them out they're going to disappear and the testimony that would have exonerated you will disappear with it it's at that point i would stop answering questions and answer anything with the officer, I'd like to talk with my attorney. You're going to have my full cooperation after I've spoken with counsel. Expect to be handcuffed, expect to be spending some time in the back of a patrol car, maybe even in a cell. I've seen over the decades everything from getting a pat on the back to uh, you know, wind, winding up uh, in a multi-year legal nightmare.
2: I'm sure that depends on the state that you live in, you know.
0: No, it depends on the total totality of the circumstances and the locality. Okay. I've seen New York cops and L.A. cops that were most supportive of the uh, the armed citizen who fired and prosecutors who were supportive of them. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, that surprised know, me. I live,
0: in a, I live in a gun-friendly state, so I'm I'm safe. Really, uh, is Florida a gun-friendly state? Uh, Talk to uh, George Zimmerman, who's literally had to change his name and live in hiding a decade after being acquitted. Um, Arizona is gun-friendly. If he was still alive, you could talk to Harold Fish, who was sent to prison for a clear-cut self-defense shooting there. Um, You'll find that even in the red states, there are the blue islands of typically the capital cities, the university towns, etc., and we have the prosecutors who have been elected on a uh, anti-gun violence, anti-police, and all that. And they are looking for people to make examples of, particularly if they got 100000 or half a million uh, in campaign donations from George Soros. Uh, they want to please Mr. Moneybags. Yeah. That that's not a QAnon conspiracy. That's documented. Uh,
2: can we go um, back just a little bit to um, where where we were a little earlier in in some of the process that we should take and talk about? Is there any advice on on how you should prepare uh, your family members for something like this that happens? You know, Good question in, in New York, um, we're not allowed to have any type of. Um, uh, I don't
1: self-defense, self-defense insurance, self-defense
2: insurance. I, I didn't want to use the word insurance but we are able to have uh, new york tac defense and you know that's at least a a number that i know i've i've talked to my wife about like hey if this happens here's this card this is who you should call yeah. you know things like that
0: uh that would be a good idea and have uh, i think that's a good idea for anyone uh find out uh if you don't belong to uh, an organization or you can't join one for whatever reason, call one of those organizations and ask, uh, look, right now uh, I'm told that I can't uh, join you, but do you have an attorney here that you could refer me to? Okay. And most of them will give you the courtesy of doing so. Failing that, uh, talk to your local cops. Find out who, who is the attorney that their union would retain for them if uh, they were involved in a shooting and were criminally charged. Uh, you, you're carrying on a piece of celluloid instead of a badge. But a shooting is a shooting. And the, the same dynamics of reasonableness, etc., deadly danger, etc., are all the same. And a guy who's defended 20 cops in shootings will have a damn good idea how to defend an armed citizen in a shooting. Um, it would not hurt to contact them. It'll, co- it'll probably cost you a few hundred bucks. But, but after you uh, have done your own study of the law, so you know what to ask, see if you can book 30 to 60 minutes of their time. And what you're looking for is ask them particularly about the mood of the courts towards self-defense shootings in that jurisdiction. And okay. often the mood of the courts simply means the mood of the prosecutor's
2: office. Right. At that time. Yeah.
0: And it wouldn't hurt to have that guy's card in your pocket and... Uh, we don't know who you're going to call when the crap hits the fan.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because we're in, so we're about an hour and a half North of New York city. We're between New York and Albany. If yeah. you're f- right. familiar with New York at all. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting because we're in a, I would say a, a more, we're more rural. And I would say that we are a little more gun friendly, yep. uh, quite a bit gun friendly. I would say is is probably pretty fair.
2: And, we we had an experience with uh, law enforcement recently that was very gun friendly.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but it's it's just interesting because it's it, it depends when where this happens, right? Like where wherever this goes down, and the circumstances and the course. circumstances obviously. But you know, I think if you're in New York City, it's going to be a whole different ball of wax. Well, I think it's good, and 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 Matt Massa, I would assume you're going to agree with us that it's it's
2: it's good to talk about all the different scenarios and circumstances because there are so many different variables, right?
0: Yeah, it's literally an infinity of variables. Yeah, that's why you have to follow a formula. You're going to be, you're going to be treated by a formula by the police. The courts have a formula. You have to know the formula and act within that formula.
1: So you mentioned the ability, opportunity, and jeopardy, which I've heard that before. Uh, it always escapes me over time. But can you explain the jeopardy part one more time? I, I got the ability. Jeopardy.
0: And- the jeopardy is the manifest intent element. Uh, the person is obviously showing he intends you criminal harm. Uh he might be screaming, I'll kill you. Gotcha. Um he might be lunging at you with a knife. He might be doing both. Pounding your but, face uh,
1: in with his fist, that would that would count. Yeah, that'll
0: kinda of do it. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: Uh, and and body language, that's a big exclamation is, point.
1: Is eating
2: my favorite cookies count? Like if you got in my pantry and started eating my cookies? <laughs> Uh,
1: no. No. Uh, (laughs) no. Gotta let him have the cookies. Let him have the cookies.
0: (laughs) I would let him, uh, the law says, let him have the hope diamond. Uh, (laughs) Seriously, the Supreme Court has said, human life must always be put above what the court called mere property.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had done a, years ago, I had done a, um, training exercise with our local sheriff's department where they ran me through different scenarios and, uh, we used, um, marking cartridges to kind of you know uh take care of situations when need be um and there was a situation where they had me up in the bedroom upstairs and guy broke in and he was you know i forget exactly the scenario but he he was kind of yelling up to me and i was yelling down to him and i was yelling to him take the tv you can have it just just leave take it and go (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they were laughing at the end. They said, you were going to let the guy take your TV? I said, yeah, whatever. TVs are cheap nowadays. I said, he got the TV, you know,
2: they'll, they'll pick them up later on. I was waiting for you to throw the wallet down the stairs. Here, take this, get out. <laughs> yeah,
1: but I, I agree. I mean, if you listen, think of how expensive all this court process is, right? And you know, legal fees, if you get off of the guy taking your TV or your cookies, yeah. you're, you're home free. <laughs> He's not taking one Once, of the cars.
0: One self-defense shooting I did right out a year ago in uh, South Dakota. Cost the guy a little over $300,000 Yeah, that
2: he's never going to get back. That's what we've heard from a couple attorneys that we know. Actually, Peter Tillman from TAC Defense, he kind of said that. That, That's about what I think the going rate to defend yourself is these days if you're innocent.
1: Yep, it's definitely worth letting them have the cookies, Keith. So anyway, Mas, I want to thank you for chatting with us and sharing your years of knowledge and experience. Anytime we can have in-depth conversations like this with men such as yourself, it provides tremendous value to us and, and our audience as well. And I'm very personally very grateful for the opportunity. I know Keith is as well. And to everyone listening, we want to thank you again for taking time out of your day to tune into our show. You can find links in the show notes to all of our social media, so be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Discord so we can keep the conversation going.
0: Well, thanks to you guys. You are the you are the conduits who are bringing this information to your listeners. I hope they appreciate it.
1: Thank, Thank you very much. We appreciate that.